She's a senior special agent for the United States government. Her investigations include the attacks on 9-11. She's a fifth-degree black belt in judo, a highly respected sensei, and she was on the U.S. national judo team and won several medals in international tournaments. And she's coming up on the Law Enforcement Today show. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from New Jersey, we have Dr. Gene Kanakogi on the phone. Do I call you Doc, Dr. Gene? What's the proper terminology? Well, you can call me anything as long as you don't call me late for dinner. But yeah. uh, Gene is fine, Dr. Gene, whatever you want. Dr. Gene, I'm going to call you that. You are a fascinating character. You are a woman of huge accomplishments. And I, I thank you for coming on the show. Uh, rather than butcher your resume, because it's extensive, give people a brief rundown, your background, where you come from, your law enforcement resume from start to finish. Oh, boy. Uh, let's see. My background, I'm born and raised a Brooklyn girl, regular regular old Brooklyn girl. And uh, I grew up in, uh, in the sport of judo with my, both of my parents as judo instructors. And how that plays into how I started shaping my lens on how I saw things as a kid is I grew up in our dojo, which is our judo school, that was in the middle of Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. So my my judo family, my brothers and sisters were every every culture and ethnicity you can think of from Irish to Haitian to Jamaican to Asian, you name it, that's what I grew up in in the true melting pot of Brooklyn. I was also a member of the US judo team and I'm a fifth degree black belt in judo. I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice for my undergrad and my grad. And uh, I'm probably going to miss a whole bunch of things and, and skip around a little bit. Fast forward, I got into law enforcement. I was selected to make a choice, the New York City Police Department or Legacy U.S. Customs. And uh, back then, my mom, who was my mentor and judo coach, who also happens to be the mother of women's judo, gave me some sound advice. Two words, go federal. Didn't question it, didn't ask her, because usually when she told me to do something, uh, aside from clean my room and do my homework, I listened. So I went federal, and I became a uh, customs inspector with U.S. Customs. I worked out of uh, Jamaica, New York, uh, JFK, which at that time I almost felt like was the drug capital, the incoming drug capital of the world. And uh, I got to see some really different have some different experiences and see things in a way that I never thought that I would see because I grew up with such welcoming, warm people through athletics, through sports. I wasn't surrounded with nefarious type of individuals. I wasn't surrounded where I had to watch my back or be careful 
or worry about my safety or the safety of others. So getting into law enforcement, I started seeing some of the underbelly of society. But that was a real shocker for you, wasn't it? It certainly was. It started it started shifting my mind a little bit. Uh, I went from having these rose-colored glasses that everybody's a wonderful person, nobody wants to harm anybody. Uh, if somebody tells you something, it should be the truth, to knowing that, uh, surprised that so many people will lie to you, sometimes just for the sake of being deceptive, for no other reason, not that they're concealing anything, but that they just don't want to tell the truth. And I know that's part of life as well, but in law enforcement, you get that significantly more than the average person gets lied to throughout their lifetime. And and I found it to be very disconcerting because I started being more suspicious of people. And all of a sudden, I go from this uh, elite judo athlete to somebody who is having a responsibility of being suspicious to protect people from drugs or bad things coming into this country. And that burden started weighing on my shoulders. I started having to carry this responsibility, but I also started doing some soul searching because I didn't want to become that salty, angry, suspicious person. By the way, that's that's a stereotype that that Hollywood loves to, to perpetuate. There's the old... We call them salty cops. There's the old salt that doesn't like anything. He's grumpy, he or she, and you can't tell them anything. They've seen it, done there, been there, got their shirts. Uh, They drink too much. They've got multiple divorces. They don't see their kids. They can't get along with anybody. And while that does occur, it's rare. It's it's, It's more the exception to the rule than the rule. I absolutely agree. Uh, first of all, I was going to joke and say, well, those were all my supervisors. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> because, because you know, it's, it's not only that Hollywood portrays that, but it's so funny because people feel since Hollywood portrays that, I noticed that some of the guys that I worked with felt that that's what they had to live up to. That's what they had to become because that's what was expected of them to be that salty, grumpy person who was unapproachable and I would even correct some people sometimes and say hey that's not you why why are you being so grumpy and and kind of snap them out of that that Hollywood mystique so one thing that Hollywood doesn't do such a great job of uh, sometimes not all the time is showing the person behind the badge behind the uniform behind the per you know when when you pull out a firearm whether you're at the range or if you actually have to pull out your firearm or use force or or have a confrontation, believe it or not, the person behind the badge and the person in the uniform is terrified. Yeah. I, I you know I have to tell you I remember going down um, some steps in in um, I was looking for a fugitive and I went went down a dark stairwell because I got a lead that he was going down. He was somewhere in the basement. So my partner was on one side. I was on the other side. We had a team up top. And as I'm going down these steps and I saw that it was dark and it was just dirty and dingy and and something you would see in a movie, the first thing that I thought of, somebody should call the police. This is dangerous. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. I recall times like that. Like, what am I doing here? You, You mentioned a good point. And I qualify every year at the range. And... I tell people, I don't get nervous about a lot of things anymore, but 
When it comes to that, I always do. It's always like a pop quiz in high school and you're not prepared. And I always do very well. And that's just firing at a paper target that's not firing back at you. When you are in a real life, life-threatening, we have to make a decision and the gunplay comes out or could be possibly involving gunplay. It is horrifying, especially afterwards. Absolutely. You know, after after being a, a customs inspector at JFK, I actually became an agent, and we call that an 1811 uh, U.S. federal agent. So, again, I had to go through an academy all over again, uh, the criminal investigator training program, and then whatever add-on academies. And you go through hand-to-hand defensive tactics, control tactics, firearms training, and you're right. The paper target doesn't shoot back. But when you go through some different labs and you actually have uh, people shooting back at you, it's it's scary. And even if it's paint pellets, and, and um, I got plenty of welts, and all, anybody who went through the academy and dealt with the uh, non-lethal training ammunition had got plenty of welts from being shot at. But it, it's I'm sure terrifying. you have plenty of welts also from your judo background. We're going to talk more with Dr. Jean Kanakogi about her law enforcement career, about investigating 9-11, about her mom, her judo background, and insights you won't hear anywhere else. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network, on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today Podcast Network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today show brought to you by Switched On Life. Go to switchedonlife.com, watch, like, and share the podcast, and read or listen to the book. You can receive a signed version of the book, which will include a free mini switched on flashlight, Hurry and receive free shipping and handling. Get more details about the book, the podcast, and more at switchedonlife.com. That's switchedonlife.com. Back to our conversation with Dr. Jean Kanakogi on the Law Enforcement Today Show. She's a federal law enforcement officer. I always get their positions and whatnot wrong, so I don't want to butcher it. We'll let her tell you about that. She's also a world-class judo competitor, part of the U.S. national judo team, won several medals in international tournaments. Her mom was known as, the, I believe, the mother of women's judo. Is that the correct terminology? It is. It is. Uh, the reason we call her the mother of women's judo, well, first of all, anybody that knew Rusty Kanakogi knew she was a mother in several different ways, not just the mothering term. Uh, and that's a little bit of a Brooklyn accentuation on the word mother. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Rusty grew up in Brooklyn in a tumultuous household with a father that gambled and drank and was absent and a mom that got hooked on painkillers because she got her hands mangled in a uh, factory she worked in in Coney Island. So Rusty grew up on the streets in uh, and ran the boardwalk in Luna Park back in the 50s. 
Well, you know, she got married young, and uh, unfortunately, she married somebody just like her dad during the first uh, the first time she got married, and he ended up drinking alcohol, and she went to Al-Anon to meet other people to try to support him. But while she was at Al-Anon, she met another guy who worked out, and, you know, she was just very curious on what he did, and he told her that he did judo, and she had no idea what judo was in the 50s, you know, you they didn't highlight too much of uh, the Japanese sport and Japanese martial arts in America. So she went with him to the YMCA in Brooklyn and Prospect Park and watched the judo class and she wanted to join. Unfortunately, they wouldn't let her in because they said, well, no women can come in. And she was big and she was strong. Uh, just to circle back, she was a street gang leader. She ran the female gang, the Apaches, in Brooklyn. Uh, she was arrested and did time for boosting cars, and, and she got shot at and all sorts of trouble. So she needed something to harness her anger, her energy, and everything else. What she did is she actually got into that judo class. Uh, they made her change in a broom closet, but she earned her spot there. Uh, she learned the technique. She got her spot and in 1959, she went to the Utica YMCA to support her team that was in a team competition, but her teammate got hurt, and uh, they put her in in his place. And she had short hair, so she ace-bandaged her breast, so nobody could tell any different, and they didn't expect her to win anyway. So the coach told her, just pull a draw. She pulled a draw. Uh, well, she went in to pull a draw. And in her head, she, she heard, well, wait a minute, women should be allowed to compete. And at that moment, she was fighting her opponent, and this guy was trying to rip her in pieces. Well, she won. She threw him for a full point unexpectedly, and she just pulled this right out of her hat and threw him for a perfect point. She won. They found out that she won, and they stripped her of her medal because they told her, well, I'm sorry, women are not allowed. From that point on, she said, oh, no, this, this is a horrible feeling. She felt that she did everything wrong just for being a woman. And she claimed that that was her pivotal moment when no woman will ever suffer such an indignity ever again. So she decided from there, women's judo needs to be equal. And subsequently, women's judo needs to be included in the Olympic Games. That's a phenomenal story. She, she sounds like she's the type of person I would love to have a cup of coffee with. To be honest well, I, with you, and you co-wrote, co-authored a book about your mom. What's that called? I did. It's called Get Up and Fight. And the reason why it's called Get Up and Fight is I can't even tell you how many times she used to tell that to me. Now, I'm not currently on the U.S. national team. I was back in the day, but she was my coach, and she was the national coach and the Olympic coach. So Get Up and Fight was just so appropriate. Uh, and not only did she fight for women's judo, but she fought alongside with Billie Jean King and uh, the Women's Sports Foundation to fight for Title IX. And coming up next year will be the Title IX anniversary. Title IX is for women to have equality in sports. So her and Billie Jean King teamed up, and, and they really fought for equality. And Billie Jean King actually wrote the forward for this book. Such an amazing story about a truly amazing person. Uh, and not to take away from your story, because there's a lot, and people will find out in a moment, there's so much about you that that is just mind-blowing. People like your mom, by the way, the whole concept of the title, Get Up and Fight, really resonates with me in my career in law enforcement. I was taught from day one in the academy 
that if you are in a bad situation, no matter how bad, no matter how much you're getting your clock handed to you or cleaned by your opponent, no matter what it is, it's life or death. You got to fight. You cannot quit. You cannot give up. So this concept of get up and fight, I think applies to law enforcement and it applies to all walks of life. It certainly does. This story is not just Rusty's story, but this story is her story to give because, well, first of all, it's written in her voice. So I was able to maintain, and it sounds like she's actually sitting with you telling you her story when you're reading this book. And, and there are some very funny parts, typical Brooklynisms. Uh, you, you mix Japanese with Yiddish and, and you get Rusty. Uh, and she wasn't Japanese. She was a, a Jewish German woman from Brooklyn, but uh, she married my dad, who happens to be Japanese. And um, I don't know if you remember the commercial, Kanakogi versus Samsonite. He was the karate guy that no. kicked that kicked out the luggage, the Samsonite luggage. And, and uh, when he wasn't teaching judo, he was out making commercials. I actually uh, took judo for about two years at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my sensei was a man named Havada. I believe he's back in Japan now. And I can tell people I've never been physically worked out the way I was worked out by that man. And I was, and I still am in many ways, a, a big guy and I was very headstrong and they teamed me up with someone who was 40, 50 pounds lighter than me. I had a spar with them and I'm thinking, I'm gonna bend them like a pretzel. I'll get, and they tore me up. It was using my movement, my strength, my mass against me. And uh, that really applies very well in, in law enforcement. Those skills really carried over and helped me and helped save not just my life, but the life of the people attacking me. Absolutely. Well, you know, part of uh, just going back to the book and how it ties over to a career in law enforcement, this book touches upon empowerment, survival. It gives you the inspiration to get up and fight. Just like you said, when, you know, if your clock is being cleaned, you have to still get up and fight. You have to dig deep down inside and grab onto that true grit that you have and get up and fight. And sometimes, even if your get up and fight means getting dressed and getting out of bed, or if your get up and fight means, you know, going, going and doing something that you ordinarily wouldn't do, because what it does is it circles back into the resilience. You have to maintain a level of resilience. And this book, including how it spills over into my law enforcement career, is everything of resilience and shows that you don't have to be born in the spotlight and you don't have to be born somebody, and I'm using air quotes, somebody special. You can be an ordinary person and change the world for so many and change the lives for so many just by following your passion and following your dreams. We're talking with Dr. Jean Kanakogi. She is a federal agent. She's also co-author of the book, Get Up and Fight. We're gonna talk about her high-profile investigations, including events like the attack of 9-11 and much more. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Are your supervisors adding to low morale? If you answered yes, but you don't know how to fix the morale problem, start with my book. Beginner's Guide to Leadership by Eddie Molina. Available on Amazon or on my website, eddiemolina.com. That's E-D-D-I-E-M-O-L-I-N-A.com. Return conversation with Dr. Gene Kanakogi on the Law Enforcement Today show. Uh, I'll give you a brief, very brief, in a nutshell, 
Look at her. She is a doctor. She's a PhD. She is a federal law enforcement officer. She has been part of the United States women's judo team. She's competed in international tournaments. She's co-authored a book, Get Up and Fight, about her mother, the memoir of Rusty Kanakogi, the the mother of women's judo in the United States, and uh, so much more. And there's so much in your story that I think really exemplifies what a lot of our modern law enforcement officers are like nowadays. A lot of people have this stereotype in their mind, and it's, again, perpetuated by Hollywood, that we're dumb, can't get other jobs, and it's just not true. We have highly educated, multilingual, multi-talented individuals doing the role of law enforcement, and you're a great example of that. Well, thank you. I think, you know, blaming Hollywood, well, Hollywood does have a lot of power. And one of the funny stories is I was out in, I think it was Nebraska, and I was tasked to teach interviewing and interrogation skills to uh, one of the local police departments. So I asked everybody, and I and I, pull, I pulled the question, where did you get a lot of your interview and interrogation skills? And at first I thought they said this in jest, but they were very serious. They said, TV. Yeah. And I paused and I said, well, what shows? So they told me Law and Order SVU or Law and Order shows or uh, NYPD Blue going back a little bit further. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, Hollywood does have to do a better job because that's where some of these smaller police departments are learning their skills. And, and we as the general public buy that and we elect people and not to get political because this isn't a political show but we elect people based off of those things we learn from hollywood about the way things should be and that's not the reality of what it is and i'll give you an example your background you did international competition so you traveled all over the world then you began to focus on a career in law enforcement and you said earlier in the conversation you began to get jaded. You didn't want to be that you know salty old cop who was so negative, but you began to see sides of people and sides of violence that troubled you. I did. I did. I saw. You know. I, I saw. I couldn't understand why people would swallow drugs to smuggle it into the country, and let alone I couldn't understand why people would want to do drugs, knowing the orifice it was coming out of. So. I started seeing that and also hang, trying to hang on to the person that I am, which is uh, I view myself as a good, kind person who's very fair and open-minded. So how do I make that balance? How do I balance this dichotomy of seeing the ugly, soulless part of humanity, but yet still seeing the good? So I struggled with that, and I really just wanted to get down to the substrate. How do I still see that good? And it goes back to my judo roots, because essentially we're all the same it's just a matter of how life affects you and what you do with it so going forward in my law enforcement career again circling back saying that and telling you about the person there's a person behind that badge there's a person that's that's just as scared as the person that you're talking to but we have to put on airs we have to put on a front and we actually have the responsibility sometimes of showing the confidence in a situation to de-escalate the situation so that if we show we're nervous people are going to be terrified so we have to remain calm but inside your insides are all jittery as well yeah, so, praying that I didn't make the wrong decision, that I did the right things, departmental policy-wise and on the street-wise. Look, you couldn't be the Barney Fife kind of guy. That just was not allowed. You had to be 
certain about what you're doing. If it was, I'll give you a great example. There was an incident where I got smoke inhalation and it was, I was driving the street and I saw a roof on fire and then I saw people started knocking on the door and I saw people inside and they're all special needs. They were intellectually disabled for whatever term is correct term nowadays. And they didn't want to open the door for me. I had to bust in and I just start taking people out. You can't be second guessing yourself when you've got a situation like that. You've got to act as if you know exactly what you're doing. And nothing trained me for that. That's so true. Uh, you know, going going to Hollywood, so nothing trains you for it. So Hollywood has done a much better job recently in some of in some of the shows. Although sometimes I can't watch a show because how do you go up the steps with your finger on the trigger pointed right. up at the st- up at the steps? You're going to shoot your partner in the behind, you know. But so Hollywood still needs to get a hold of that and and have some really good consultants. But also the balance is the law enforcement officer has to take on the responsibility to not take on the Hollywood persona and stay true to who they are. Stay true true to themselves. So there's really an equal balance of, of that. And yes, you're not taught about certain things. You know, you're given the basic needs of what you have to learn in the academy. You're given the rules. Everything else is what you accumulate in your own toolbox. And that's where additional training comes into play. And that's also where if you do some extra for yourself if you really practice some gratitudes and really keep yourself grounded you can actually have a very fulfilling career and still come out of this without being that salty grumpy person one of the things that we're going to get into is the events at 9-11 and how impacted all of us and jean was there and she had a dr jean had a unique role that many people can't even begin to imagine i'm one of those people uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But before we get to that, there's basics of, of criminal investigation that we're all taught from day one. And just for the for the benefit of you listening, we examine the crime scene at first and we start taking in all the evidence, protect the scene, and then work your way out from there. So that's kind of universal, no matter where you're at and no matter what level you go to. When you get criminal investigations on a federal level, whether it be major narcotic smugglers or human smuggling or whatever it might be, you pretty much have to do the same thing, don't you? You absolutely do. And one of the one of the things that's so important to an investigation is to stay away from confirmation bias. I'm going to bounce back to Hollywood because so many times you hear the supervisor on a show say, well, you go get that guy and you prove that he did it. Well, that right there, that's confirmation bias. What we do is we find the facts. We don't go out and say, we're going to, you know, we like this guy for, the, for doing this crime, so now we're going to prove that he did this crime or she did this crime. What we do, or at least I can say I pride myself in doing, is finding all of the facts and letting the facts play out the way they should. And, you know, if you, if you do an, an investigation and the person who you thought did the crime turns out that they didn't well you know mazel tov. they they're not charged and you keep investigating further and further as you pull those facts together that's where the justice system kicks in and you analyze those facts and then you can find out get you know ultimately the whodunit people have told me and the best way i can describe this is you let the the evidence lead you to who did the crime and one of the easiest crimes to solve and can be challenging at the same time as homicide. 
because the vast majority of time with homicide, it's someone you know that did it. And it's someone the victim is close to or someone they know and love and very intimate with. So you usually start the investigation there and you start working your way out. So one of the things my wife and I see all the time on these television shows, especially the documentaries, is, well, they looked at the husband and he wouldn't let me go until blah, 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 blah. And that's the natural progression. When we return, we're going to talk about a major life-changing incident for many of us in the United States. Now, some people listening were too young. I was not. I was. I can remember watching the attacks of 9-11 on television. I was retired from law enforcement. It has tremendously impacted me. And I know it's had a tremendous impact on Dr. Jean as well because she's one of the investigators. We're going to take a short break. This is a law enforcement the radio show. stations in the United States, there's only one show like ours. The Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Facebook, there's only one official page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. That's Law Enforcement Today radio show on Facebook. When you get there, click like and follow. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603 That's 800-451-8603 Return conversation with Dr. Gene Kanakogi, PhD, federal law enforcement officer, also co-author of the book Get Up and Fight. We'll talk about that again in a moment. I remember... Dr. Gene, being retired from police work, I was down in Delray Beach, Florida, and I saw on television the attacks of 9-11 and was just shocked that this was going on. Uh, and, and I'm gonna fast forward to multiple years later, I was visiting New York City for work and I went by, which back then before they had the new construction finished, it was a big hole and there were members of the NYPD there. And I wanted to say something to them. And I wanted to just say, say very simply, I'm a retired police sergeant and I'm sorry for what you all went through. And I couldn't get the words out of my mouth because I started to burst out in tears. I couldn't, I still can't imagine the depth of the impact that that had on the, the fire department, the police departments there, and everybody else. It was beyond traumatic. You wound up, being one of the chief investigators of this well i was on i was detailed to the joint terrorism task force immediately they took all agents and they just dispersed agents into different parts of the task force Uh, i was tasked with leading a team to go investigate leads that came in to investigate um, the attacks 
and the people who were responsible for the attacks. But what also what I also did is I was a part of the rescue recovery of the uh, of digging on the pile. They called it the bucket brigade. And I should digress. It it started as rescue recovery, but probably within 24 hours of the attacks, it just simply became recovery. And uh, going back to that time, chasing down leads was very satisfying. Uh, my partner and I actually found Muhammad Atta's dentist in Brooklyn. And that we found to be very interesting, or at least one of the dentists. And of course, what we had to do was give the information up the chain. Uh, what we did was just find the facts and just provide the, the additional information. We couldn't investigate further because we had other leads to follow. But I was on that pile digging for uh, about six straight months. And digging tirelessly, we formed what they call a bucket brigade. And that was a whole bunch of us on the pile of all of the towers that fell. And we were just pulling out debris, looking for remains, looking for evidence, uh, looking for anything, really. You, you couldn't really define what you were looking for. And the things that, that still just are so clear, I can't believe it, it's nearly 20 years later is the bell that used to ring before something would, would fall down again or when they found an unstable section of the pile, how the bell would ring. When I was on that pile, pretty much the whole time, especially in the beginning, it was still on fire and still smoldering. And I, I, it was just so surreal. And uh, just the other night, I was thinking about uh, my, my office at that time. I was at uh, 26 Federal Plaza, so just a few blocks away from Lower Manhattan, and I was thinking how eerily silent it was at night when I walked down Chamber Street, and how there were pieces of of found fuselage on the street. There were cars that were just like little accordions and smashed on the street, and the the dust, this fine gray dust that was just everywhere in which I was covered as well daily and how it was just getting that you can't get that smell and you can't ever get away from that smell and of course you know certain things trigger that smell like uh, just kind of olfactory sense straight to the brain and how I remember I had a cough after that for they called it the 9-11 cough it was just this weird tick of a cough for several years that you'd always have to have some sort of a cough drop. Um, but, you know, one of the things that really haunts me from then is coming outside from digging on that pile, being completely mentally and physically exhausted, and then seeing family members hold up signs uh, and pictures of their loved ones screaming at me because, of course, it said police or something uh, in some insignia on me screaming at me, did you see my loved one? Did you see this person? Did you see that person? And looking at me with such hope as if I could turn around and say, oh, yeah, I just saw him. He's fine. And I wished, I prayed that I could say that, but I knew I couldn't because when I came out from the uh, the, the confines of the area, I would walk and you would see the tons of the trailers on the side of the West Side Highway, which, in, which were morgues and the temporary morgue, of course, was in Lower Manhattan. It was at, um, I think it was a Burger King down there. But uh, just the thing that haunts me the most is I can't escape when I close my eyes is seeing these family members in such pain holding these signs up of, of their loved ones. And we all want to be able to deliver great news. We all want to 
go into law enforcement to make a difference and save the world and all those things. And I'm not saying that to be sarcastic or critical. And that's what we really want to do. So I can't imagine being in your role, in your situation, and not being able to help them, not being able to give them the answers they want. Not only not being able to give them the answer they want, but being the recipient of their anger, because of, co- of course, they were angry. They, they didn't, weren't at the stage of grieving yet. They were angry. How could their loved one just be taken from them at that split second? And where is their loved one? They had no answers. So I was the recipient, and we all were the recipients of their anger, but we were physically and mentally exhausted. And, you know, one of the investigations that I had during the day when I, w- when I was hunting down leads was I had a landlady that complained and that called in and said that she had a whole bunch of Muslim men in one of her apartments and they had suitcases and they would meet every night and there was just a lot of suspicious stuff going on. So she wanted us to come immediately. And of course, you know, at that time, you hear this type of, you know, suspicious people with suitcases, like, oh my goodness, is is another 9-11 attack being planned? What's going on? Well, I took a step back and I took a breath and I said, wait a minute, there's no way I'm going to run in hard charging because I'm not that woman's personal police officer. I'm not that woman's personal federal agent. She may be a concerned citizen, but also she may be motivated some other way. And I took a step back. I reviewed records. I reviewed logs. I reviewed the calls. And I went and I knocked on the door with my team. We talked to the resident and we spoke with him, his family, and we spoke with uh, other household members. Found out it was, yes, they, they were Muslim. And that had absolutely nothing to do with the call. They were not doing anything wrong. It was a landlord-tenant dispute. And she was trying to use 9-11 to exploit, because they were Muslim, to evict them because they were having a tenant, a landlord-tenant dispute. And that really gave me another moment to pause to, to remind myself that we really have to stay fair. We can't be dictated by the knee-jerk reaction of of the current events. We really have to have an open mind, be fair, and analyze and look at all the facts. You're absolutely 100% correct. And, you know, we're we're out of time. I want to talk to you again about how one recovers and maintains some sense of normalcy after an event, a catastrophic, tragic event, an investigation like that. Before we leave, you are actively involved in many things, including co-authoring the book, Get Up and Fight, the memoir of Rusty Kanakogi. Where can people get that book? You can get that book a couple of places. Uh, we're at www.rustykanakogi.com, and you can get the Kindle on Amazon. So the hardcover book, or actually the hardcover book's being released on March 30th for global release for Women's History Month. Right now we have the 40th anniversary of the First Woman's World Championships book, where you can get an autographed copy from uh, RustyKanakogi.com. And you're also the Director of Mental Health and Peer Support Services for Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. Where do people get more information about that? Well, the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, by the way, FLEOA uh, President Larry Cosme is a huge fan and a huge supporter. He listens to this show constantly when he works out. Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association has started finally this year, uh, has been building up 
to get more mental health connections and bridge the gap and smash the stigma so that people can recover from traumatic incidents, people can get help through crisis. Right now, we're putting together uh, what we can is for peer support, but we're also getting people into some mental health programs that they need. We're sending out e-blasts, we're writing letters, and we're actually working on some bipartisan bills to be able to promote confidentiality on a federal level. Dr. Jean Kennekogi, thanks so much for all you've done. Thanks for your service, and thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Leave an honest review and or rating. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.